The next thing I know is I wake up and I just remember like something bad happened to me last night. Somebody hurt me. This is Carrie Lowe's story. Carrie did everything, quote unquote, right. She reported right away. Her legal team says police systematically mishandled her case. Meanwhile, her attackers remain at large. I'm Maggie Rahr, and this is Carrie Lowe versus. Available now on CBC Listen and everywhere you get your podcasts. This is a CBC podcast. Ce défilé du 24 juin, la fête nationale des Canadiens français. June 24th is an important day in Quebec. It's Saint Jean-Baptiste Day, sort of the French-Canadian equivalent of St. Patrick's Day, and it's a provincial holiday. It has all the hallmarks of patriotic holidays the world over. Picnics, fireworks, flag-waving. And then there's the big parade in the streets of Montreal. Along with the floats and fleur-de-lis, there's usually a who's who of Quebec politics in attendance. In 1968, the who's who includes Montreal Mayor Jean Drapeau and his wife, as well as the Premier of Quebec. The British Trade Commissioner, James Cross, is there too. But most importantly, Sitting with the Archbishop of Montreal is Pierre Elliott Trudeau. He's a French-Canadian with deep roots in Quebec. His ancestors arrived from France in 1659. He was Montreal born and raised. He's also a staunch Federalist. And a little more than two months earlier, Trudeau had been elected leader of the ruling Federal Liberal Party. He was sworn in as Prime Minister in April, and his first act was to call an election for June 25th. So here he is now on the main podium under tight security measures. The RCMP is worried the FLQ will try to assassinate him. And for those in the Quebec nationalist movement, the presence of Trudeau at Saint-Jean-Baptiste on the eve of a federal election, no less, it's seen as an affront. Trudeau had built his campaign on denying any special status to Quebec, on the idea of, quote, one Canada, one nation. At a rally in Rouen, he had accused sovereigntists of being bearers of hatred, comparing them to the murderers of Robert Kennedy. Supporters of the separatist political party, the RIN, turned out with protest flags, chanting, Le Québec au Québécois, Quebec for the people of Quebec. The parade quickly becomes a riot. Les projectiles étaient pour la plupart destinés aux policiers qui venaient effectuer des arrestations à coups de matraque. The protesters are throwing bricks and bottles, some of them right at the main podium where Trudeau is seated. Many of those around Trudeau break for cover from the projectiles, but Trudeau is defiant. He remains in his seat and he juts his chin. Even now, it's a riveting piece of film. The cops fight to contain the crowds, using their clubs to beat the protesters. More than 100 people are injured, some seriously, among them innocent passers-by. Police arrest nearly 300 people, including the leader of the RIN, Pierre Bourgo. The images of Trudeau on the podium staring down protesters adds to the buzz that the press calls Trudeau-mania, the excitement for this dashing, modern, progressive leader. The next day, Trudeau cruises to victory with a strong majority. And on the morning of the elections, the chief of police rationalizes the heavy-handed response. Nous avons un exemple d'un groupe qui cherche à s'exprimer. Of course, he blames the protesters. D'une façon qu'il considère tout à fait normale et que nous considérons comme étant pas acceptable. One of those protesters was a young cab driver named Jacques Langteau. He was there with his brother and his wife, who was pregnant at the time. 
He remembers that night a little differently than the police chief. There were violent protesters. But there was also police brutality on display. The event came to be known as Le Lundi de la Matraque, Club Monday in English. Years later, Longteau recounts the story as vividly as the day it happened. Police were beating people already on the ground. Longteau was charged by a baton-swinging cop on horseback. He imagined himself in a scene from the comics. He thought he could use one of Tintin's tricks and confront the cop with his bare hands. It didn't work. Instead, Longteau was hit on the head. In the chaos, he lost consciousness. He says he saw stars, again, just like Tintin. His wife barely escaped being trampled by the horse. When he came to, Longteau was in a paddy wagon, in the arms of a young teacher and activist, a guy named Paul Rose. Rose was from the rough-and-tumble south shore of Montreal. He wiped Longteau's bloody face with his shirt. It was a tender gesture of solidarity that would cement a fateful relationship between the pair. Over the next two years, Rose and Longteau would work together, eventually reshaping the tactics of the FLQ, a new strategy that would lead to the FLQ's most dramatic and final act, what came to be known as the October Crisis. A bomb exploded today in a federal government building in downtown Montreal. Would you say that this is a communist-backed subversive group, or would you say it's French separatist terrorism? The damaging of a section of track, apparently with dynamite, has been blamed on the so-called suicide commandos. That they intend to murder in cold blood two innocent men unless their demands are met. Your letters have moved me to hope that we will soon be together again. I do hope the FLQ will continue to allow you to write to me. I'm Jeff Turner, and this is Recall, How to Start a Revolution. Chapter 6, Liberation. If you look up Jacques Langteau on Wikipedia, the first thing you learn is this. Jacques Langteau is a Canadian writer and publisher, restaurateur, and convicted terrorist. In 1970, he hadn't accomplished all of those things yet, but he was working on the terrorism part of his CV. This was not a new field for Langteau. He has the distinction of being involved with the FLQ from nearly its inception to its final act. In 1963, when he was just 17 years old, he was arrested for hurling Molotov cocktails at the Bordeaux prison. For a long time, he says he was rebelling against his father, who was deeply Catholic and deeply racist. He straightened up a little bit, and for a while he was a high school teacher but he needed a bit more income to support his growing family. A second gig as a taxi driver was better matched to his political extracurriculars. He even helped organize drivers in a fight for better wages. He also created a newspaper for them. And he gravitated back to radical direct action. He'd never abandoned the FLQ altogether, but he hadn't been planting bombs either. Along with Paul Rose, he set to work rebuilding the FLQ after the destruction of the Pierre-Paul Geoffroy network. And they had new ideas in mind, a plan to take the FLQ out of the seemingly fruitless cycle of bombings and arrests that began in 1963. They'd been inspired by the Tupamaros, Uruguayan rebels who used kidnapping as a political tool. In May, Longteau and an FLQ colleague were pulled over by Montreal police on a routine traffic check. They had a burned-out taillight. But on closer inspection, police found a little more than they'd expected in the van. There was a sawed-off shotgun, a large, vaguely coffin-shaped wicker basket, and a curious document. It was a communique meant to be dispatched after the kidnapping of the Israeli consul to Montreal. 
the two were arrested and charged with illegal possession of firearms. They posted bail, but Longto fled underground and got back to the work of radical separatist terrorism. The FLQ tended to be a bit of a family enterprise. The very first wave included a husband and wife team. Paul Rose plotted with his brother. Longto's sister and brother were part of his network. In the spring of 1970, the Rose and Longto cells were working together as one big family. Paul Rose and Jacques Longteau had been hiding together on the south shore of Montreal. They were devising a new course of action after the foiled abduction of the Israeli consul. Rose and his group wanted to remain underground and work towards building the infrastructure of the FLQ. Longteau and his friends voted in favor of going ahead with another abduction attempt. And they had a couple of targets in mind a British diplomat and the U.S. consul to Montreal. They soon ruled out the American because his security detail was too tight. That wasn't the case with the Brits, says Longtow. But Rose thought the British diplomat wasn't a great target, that it wouldn't send a strong enough message. And his group voted against the kidnapping. Longtow admits he was impatient. He'd later concede that maybe Paul Rose was right to wait. And at this point, the two crews went their separate ways. Longtow's group would become known as the Liberation Cell. Paul Rose's network was the Chenier Cell. Longtow and his gang settled on British Trade Commissioner James Cross as their target. You'll recall that James Cross was there at the Saint-Jean-Baptiste parade in 1968 when everything went sideways. Longto's group had been monitoring his comings and goings. They knew his dog-walking routine. They even had someone knock on the door to get a peek inside the house. On October 5th, the Liberation Cell set an elaborate plan in motion. The morning begins at a two-car garage the group had rented. In it is a stolen taxi from the LaSalle Cab Company and a 1963 Chrysler they'd bought. Longtow's colleague, Mark Carboneau, another taxi driver, takes the wheel of the cab with Longtow as his passenger. They switch out the rooftop sign on the stolen taxi to that of another cab company. They're doing anything they can to create confusion and to avoid identification. Longto's sister Louise is posted in a car outside the Cross house. When the others arrive in the taxi at about 7.30, Louise gives a hand signal to indicate that Cross is still inside. Now, as you can imagine, they're nervous, but they're prepared. The night before, they'd been reading the mini-manual of the Urban Guerrilla by Brazilian revolutionary Carlos Marighella. For reasons you might guess, this was a big seller in Quebec in 1970. And it's from that book that they learned not to eat anything prior to the abduction. Apparently, if you're shot in the gut on a full stomach, it makes a real mess. They followed Marighella's instructions to the letter, which meant they also double-laced their shoes. I mean, you don't want to be tripping on your laces in the middle of a kidnapping. So they park in front of the house on Redpath Crescent in a stately loop of houses on the south slope of Mount Royal. Longteau gets out of the car and makes his way to Cross's door. As trade commissioner, James Cross was a diplomatic representative of the British government. He was there to drum up trade and commerce between Canada and Britain. It was a plum job, and it came with some nice perks, including a house. The late summer of 1970 had been a happy time for the Cross family. They'd spent most of it in Britain, then returned home for their daughter's wedding to a Montrealer. On September 29th, there was a party for Cross's 49th birthday. There was a bit of tension in the air. Their neighbor, the U.S. consul, Harrison Burgess, had been the target of an FLQ kidnapping plot. But police had caught wind of it and averted the abduction. And then everything changes on October 5th. That morning, Cross skips his usual brisk walk. 
He has a lot on his plate for the day, and he's going over his itinerary with his wife when the doorbell rings. When the housekeeper opens the door, there's Jacques Langteau. He's wearing the cap of a delivery man and holding a long package done up with bright wrapping paper. Langteau tells her he has a delivery for Mr. Cross and that she needs to sign for it. C'est une Portugaise, je crois. Je dis bon, c'est où est-ce qu'il est, Monsieur Cross? Donc là, elle se met à crier. Then suddenly, two armed henchmen join Langteau at the door. And before they have time to cover their faces, the housekeeper is screaming. By this time, James Cross is upstairs in his bedroom getting dressed. He doesn't even have his pants on. Langteau bursts into the room and tells Cross to hit the floor or he's dead. Langteau pulls Cross into the bathroom and lets him get his trousers on. Then he rips the bedroom phone out of the wall and warns Cross's wife not to call police for at least an hour. Et euh, il dit attendez avant d'appeler la police, c'est un enlèvement, on est du FLQ, on veut, on veut. Longto explains that this is an FLQ action, which seems to come as no big surprise to Cross. Longto says the commissioner displayed more calm than the kidnappers did. In what seems like a very British act of stoicism. Cross demands at least one concession to civility. He asks that he have a chance to say goodbye to his wife. Longteau and the others then walk Cross down the stairs and out to the waiting taxi with the hood of his raincoat over his head. The driver, Carboneau, steers the taxi back to the garage on the other side of Mount Royal. It's about a 10-minute drive. This is where they switch vehicles. They also put a full-face gas mask on Cross. The lenses on the mask are painted black. And then they make their way to a house in North Montreal, en Rue des Recollets. They introduce terrorism to Canadians with painted slogans and Molotov cocktails. Then they graduated to dynamite time bombs, homemade, crude, but deadly. For months, police and provincial officials in Quebec had been warning that something big was coming. And they'd been pleading with the federal government since the spring to lend some support. I quoted the warning of a well-known Montreal police officer who said, the next move of the FLQ will be a political kidnapping. You can bet on it. There was growing evidence that the FLQ was gathering strength and ramping up the stakes. Evidence that included Longto's foiled attempt to abduct the Israeli consul. The terrorists began stockpiling stolen dynamite and blasting caps. No one has been arrested for these thefts, but if we believe one communique from the kidnappers at least, they and Mr. Cross are sitting on a pile of it right now. One thing is certain. They pulled off North America's first political kidnapping. It wasn't long before the kidnappers shared their list of demands, written on a communique bearing the logo of the FLQ. Quebec's justice minister wasted no time making the document public. Je puis je puis dire que l'on réclame la publication d'un manifeste politique dans tous les journaux du Québec. The FLQ had seven demands for the release of James Cross. These included the liberation of what they called political prisoners, 23 of them and they wanted a plane to transport those prisoners to either Cuba or Algeria, along with half a million dollars worth of gold. In a nod to its roots, the group also demanded that the government re-employ postal workers who'd been fired during a strike earlier that year. They wanted the name of the mole who'd infiltrated the long-toe cell. And finally, they demanded that its manifesto be broadcast and published in every newspaper in Quebec. But it wasn't a mess for the province alone to deal with. James Cross was a foreign diplomatic official, so the problem of his kidnapping landed squarely in the lap of the federal government. Mitchell Sharp was the Minister for External Affairs. Clearly, these are wholly unreasonable demands, and their authors could not have expected them to be accepted. I need hardly say that this set of demands will not be met. The shocking news of the kidnapping of a diplomat on Canadian soil made headlines around the world, or at least as far as Dallas, Texas. That's where Paul Rose was when he learned of the abduction of James Cross. And for Rose, the news was neither shocking nor even all that surprising. After the split with Longteau, Rose had formed his own cell. 
The groups acted more or less autonomously, but there was still some degree of coordination between them. Rose says that they'd learned from earlier waves of the FLQ, learned that the cells have to act in concert with one another and to arrive at a plan through democratic decision-making. Otherwise, it's anarchy. And thanks to that coordination, he knew that Longtou's group was plotting a kidnapping, even who they planned to nab. He also knew the name of the scheme, Operation Liberation. He just didn't know their hiding place or when and how it would happen. And on October 5th, when Cross was taken, Paul Rose happened to be in Texas with his mom, of all people, trying to buy guns. And by the way, his mom's name was Rose Rose. As I've mentioned, the FLQ was very family-oriented, and cells and networks tended to grow around kinship lines. This particular expedition also included Paul Rose's brother and their little sister, as well as another cell member, Francis Samard. So it was a pretty packed car. It seems to have been a poorly planned shopping trip. They didn't really have much cash, so they were passing bad traveler's checks. They'd been to Philadelphia, Baltimore, and Nashville. They'd traveled as far as Texas under the belief that there was an easy availability of guns there, which turned out to be not completely true. This was just the latest crooked path for the Rose Group. During the summer of 69, the Rose brothers and their friend moved to Perse, a picturesque tourist spot on the Gaspe Peninsula. There they met with a local kid, Bernard Lorty, and together they opened La Maison du Pêcheur, a gathering place and hostel for young people. They were trying to bring their radical message to small-town Quebec. At one point, Rose and company actually took over the local radio station and broadcast their denouncements of poverty in the region. Their project caught the attention of the mayor, and not in a good way. The people are fed up with that gang, and they want to get rid of them. He did everything he could to expel what he called dirty, bearded, drug-using troublemakers. At one point, he had firefighters turn their hoses on them to push them out of the hostel. Eventually, they got the message and left town. For a while after they got back to Montreal, they financed their operations by way of a variety of financial scams. They took out loans, which they never repaid. They got credit cards and ran up huge balances. They did all of this in their own names, which by this time they had turned into mud. They switched to bank robbery, and in the course of 12 stick-ups, they managed to get away with enough money to buy a house, rent apartments, and to purchase a farm about an hour east of Montreal. But guns, a central requirement of the revolutionary project, well, they weren't easy to come by in Canada. So here they are on this American odyssey when they get word of the kidnapping of James Cross. So they point the car back to Montreal and start the marathon journey home. They have urgent business to attend to. Originally, the FLQ had planned to abduct an American and a Brit, but that's not what happened, and Rose wasn't thrilled about it. Rose says that he worried that the abduction of Cross might mischaracterize the FLQ message as some kind of pushback against British influence. He felt it missed an important dimension, that they were fighting imperialism of every kind. Rose thought that further action was required to clarify the message. Once they were back in Montreal, they got to work settling on an equally dramatic target. Rose figured that would show that the FLQ despised all stripes of exploitation and colonialism. Their target would not be an American or a Brit or even an Anglo-Canadian. It would be Pierre Laporte, the Quebec Minister of Labour and Immigration. Rose decided he was a good symbol of economic power. 
The cell holed up while they ironed out the details of the plan. And on the afternoon of October 10th, Paul Rose, Jacques Rose, Francis Samard, and Bernard Lorty piled into a green 1968 Chevy Biscayne. The die was cast. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings, host of The Big Story. For six years now, we've been telling one story a day, every one of them about something that matters to Canadians. This spring, though, we're going deeper. The Big Story presents Pay Dirt, the inside story of Ontario's Greenbelt scandal. From political games to stag and doe parties, endangered species, RCMP investigations, and Las Vegas massages, you will hear the full story. The Big Story presents Pay Dirt. New episodes every Monday, and you can get them all by following The Big Story wherever you get your podcasts. Before his political career, Pierre Laporte had made his name as a reporter for Le Devoir, a major French-language daily in Montreal. He'd been a thorn in the side of the Duplessis government, reporting scandals and mismanagement. He was first elected in 1961, a part of the Lesage government that sparked the Quiet Revolution. And he represented the left wing of the Liberal Party, so maybe not the most obvious target for the FLQ. But there was also the matter of convenience. In February, Paul Rose and a colleague had posed as a married couple. They'd rented a house on Armstrong Road in Longueuil on the South Shore. Pierre Laporte was also on the South Shore, in Saint-Lambert, just a short drive. A short drive, but a world away. 725. I remember reading the account from the nephew who was there. He saw the car come off Berkeley, and then they would have turned left here. Yeah, that's the one. The Laporte house sits on a corner property across from a huge field. It's modest but well-kept. The gardens are well-established. The whole neighborhood feels this way. There's a quiet, mid-century elegance about it. It's early evening when Pierre Laporte steps out of his house to toss a football around with his nephew, Claude Laporte. It's Thanksgiving weekend. At 6.18, the Chevy Biscayne turns onto the street. The men inside are armed with two M1 rifles and a sawed-off 12-gauge shotgun. The gang would later recall that they couldn't believe their luck. Here's their kidnapping target right there for the grabbing. No security, no problem. The next day, Claude describes for a CBC reporter what happened. Well, we were uh, playing football and uh, uh, the car stopped just in front of my uncle. And so two, uh, two men uh, get out of the, the car and... Uh, Mm-hmm. and uh, said to, to him to turn the car with uh, two guns to, uh, what do you say, mitraillette? Do they have machine guns or, or, or uh, pistols? Handguns? No, mitraillette, c'est quoi? Machine guns. Machine guns, yes. And uh, what did they say? I, I don't know what they said, but they, they, they pushed him uh, with, with uh, the machine gun. Mm-hmm. They, they pushed him into the car? In the car, yes. Were there other men in the car? Yes, there were two or three in in front and two. Uh, what did you do then? Uh, I, I I walked to the car and uh, I uh, I saw the, the man uh, inside, but I cannot s- saw them uh, see them very well because they they were hoods um, over the faces. Yes. And, uh, they, the abduction they, uh, took just seconds, and they were gone. The kidnappers roared off with Laporte to the little house on Armstrong Road, just a 15-minute drive away. Would have been right there. There wouldn't have been snow on the ground, though. Armstrong was a dirt road back in 1970, and it's not much more than that now. The street is so short and so narrow, the snowbanks are piled so high, it's tough to navigate our way through. With a forest at one end and open fields all around, it's also a bit of an island, as though developers just sort of gave up on the area. It feels desolate. There's a mishmash of tiny bungalows and trailers. The house where Laporte was held was torn down a long time ago. Yeah, it would have looked like one of these ones, eh? Yeah. I wonder... It's it's interesting. The, the houses are pretty tightly together. I wonder what it was like getting him in the house 
without anybody noticing. One neighbor would later tell police that cars, many of them taxis, would be moved in and out of the garage at all hours. Another neighbor described the occupants as not very friendly. So they hadn't gone unnoticed. But they rented the place under pseudonyms, and no one remembered seeing the car that drove off with Laporte. And on that day, police believed he was probably transferred to a taxi at some point. When they arrive back at the house on Armstrong, the kidnappers take Pierre Laporte to a small bedroom at the back. There's a ragged mattress on the floor. It's filthy. This is where he'll sleep the next seven nights. They're eating so poorly, Laporte will eventually give them 20 bucks to go get some barbecue chicken. Le ministre québécois du Travail et de l'Immigration, Monsieur Pierre Laporte, a été kidnappé au début de la soirée. The kidnapping happened just half an hour after the Minister of Justice announced that he would refuse to negotiate with the FLQ. The morning after his abduction, Laporte is directed to write a letter to Quebec Premier Robert Bourassa. The FLQ hopes that with one of their own now missing, the province might be feeling a little more conciliatory about their demands. That night, the letter is read on the TV news. Here is an unofficial translation. My dear Robert... I am convinced I am writing the most important letter I may ever write in my lifetime. For the moment... Laporte warns of an escalation that will only end with the freeing of political prisoners. After me, it will be a third, and then a fourth, and then a fifth. You are familiar with my personal case, which does merit attention. I had two brothers. They are dead, both of them. He notes that he's the head of a large family and implores authorities to consider what his death would mean. My departure would mean irreparable grief, for you know of the closeness which unites the members of my family. There's a postscript to Laporte's letter. It reads, Bring an end to the search, and let's not have the police deciding to continue it without you knowing about it. The success of this search would be my death warrant. And then the waiting begins. It was a long weekend. I was with my, with my family. We were uh, uh, on holiday for a few days. Robert de Maris was a lawyer with the Provincial Liberal Party in October of 1970. He was out of town celebrating his 33rd birthday when he got the news. Well, that was, to me, very important, very dramatic, very unbelievable. And I immediately decided that I would go back to Montreal the next day. Back in Montreal, Demers learned he'd been tapped to negotiate for Laporte and Cross's release. But he had no experience in the kind of work that Bourassa was now calling on him to do. And how did that work? How did you... I don't, I don't think there's a training manual, or there wasn't at that time, for civil servants to negotiate with terrorists. How, how did the communication begin? You're quite right. There is no manual or... I'm not a criminal law expert. Uh, in fact, I was practicing law in the field of finance, in the field of insurance. So Damaris did what any young lawyer about to negotiate with a liberation front might do. He watched every revolutionary's favorite film, The Battle of Algiers. He was hoping to glean some insight into the radical mind. And then he got down to business. The premier made it clear to Demers that his mandate was to ensure the safety of the kidnapped victims. With that in mind, he went to meet with a lawyer named Robert Lemieux. By this time, Lemieux had made a name for himself for his involvement with earlier FLQ legal trouble. He'd offered counsel to Pierre Vallière during the trial for the shoe factory bombing. In his many TV and radio appearances from that time, he comes off as more a showman than legal counsel. He also happened to be in jail, thanks to some other dealings with the FLQ, when Demers came calling. He was in a little cell, a dim light. He was sitting on a little bed in metal with no mattress. The two agreed that a jail cell was not the place for negotiations. Demers kindly offered to pull some strings to have Lemieux released. And then they made plans to meet the next day to begin official negotiations which didn't really go anywhere. In fact, discussions were an exercise in frustration. 
Demers says that Lemieux would regularly make and then break promises. He would make pronouncements through the media. And it was never actually clear whether Lemieux had a mandate to speak for the FLQ in the first place. That made it hard to address the kidnappers' demands. I don't know how far the terrorists are prepared to go. We don't know that. Federal authorities Certainly were at least publicly dismissing the idea of giving in to any demands. I mean, the ridiculous demands, gold bullion and free flights to Algiers, the whole thing is utterly impossible. Demers was growing ever more frustrated. He couldn't trust Lemieux. And then Demers was called to Quebec City on another matter. Lemieux agreed to follow him to continue with negotiations there, but he didn't keep that promise either. Instead, he announces on radio his decision not to meet again with Demers. So I said to Boras that I didn't think that discussing with uh, Lemieux would lead to anything and that we should rather uh, make the, our next uh, move by addressing ourselves directly uh, to the kidnappers. And the only way you do that is through the press. So that's what Demers did. In the little house on Armstrong Road, Pierre Laporte heard the government tell kidnappers that it wouldn't be negotiating anymore. Francis Samard would later describe Laporte's reaction in that moment. He says it was as though you could see the life draining out of him. In a fit of despair, Laporte tried to throw himself out of the window of the bedroom where he was kept but he got caught up on the broken glass. The kidnappers pulled him back into the house. They wrapped up his deep gashes. None of this was going according to plan. By now, the federal government is shoring up its protection of federal officials and buildings. The presence of military personnel on the streets of Ottawa has become difficult to ignore. But this was Canada in 1970, and even with all that military and the fear of what the FLQ might do next, if you got the timing right, you could still just walk up to the Prime Minister, ask him a few questions. And on October 13th, that's exactly what the CBC's Tim Ralph and Peter Riley from CJON-TV do. They're on the steps of Parliament, and what unfolds is one of the most extraordinary, raw moments in Canadian political history. Even if you grew up in Canada and managed to sleep through every history class, you've probably at least heard the last part of this exchange. Sir, what is it with all these uh, men with guns around here? Haven't you noticed? Yeah, I've noticed them. I worry you people decided to have them. What's your worry? I'm not worried, but you seem to be. So you're not worried? What's your... I'm not worried. I'm I'm worried about living in a town that's uh, full of people with guns running around in it. Are you? Have they done anything to you? Have they pushed you around or anything? They pushed around friends of mine. Yeah? What were your friends doing? Trying to take pictures of them. Aha! Is that against the law? No, not at all. Well, Does, re- doesn't it worry you, having a town, that you've got to resort to this kind of thing? No, it doesn't worry me. I think it's natural that if uh, people are being abducted, uh, that they be protected against such abduction. What would, do, what would you do if... Uh, if a Quebec minister, another Quebec minister were abducted, or a federal minister. This all goes on for another couple of minutes. The prime minister and the reporters debating in real time what gives the FLQ a greater sense of victory. Troops in the streets or security as usual, and where it all leads. Yeah, and I'm suggesting that the more recognition you give to them, uh, the greater their victory is, and I'm not interested in giving them a victory. But you, well, there's uh, an surely a proposition that perhaps it is... Uh, would be wise to use uh, less inflammatory terms than uh, than bandits when you talk about a bunch of people who have the lives of two men in their hands. You don't think they're bandits? Well, regardless of what I The exchange I concludes with what might be the most famous footage in Canadian political history. No, I, I still go back to the choice that you, you have to make in the kind of society that you yeah, live well, in. Well, there's a lot of bleeding hearts around who just don't like to see people with helmets and guns. All I can say is uh, go on and bleed. But it's more important to keep law and order in this society than to uh, uh, be worried about uh, weak-kneed people who uh, don't like the looks of, uh, of a soldier. At, at any cost? At any cost? How far would you go with that? How far would you extend that? Well, just watch me. Just watch me. Three words that would ring in the Canadian consciousness for decades. Depending on where you stood politically and philosophically, Trudeau's tough stance was perfectly appropriate in the face of terror. Or 
It was a needless and dangerous provocation in a delicate moment. Public polling at the time suggested that a large majority of Canadians were on the side of Trudeau. But even after two abductions, the FLQ had significant public sympathy in Quebec. To introduce a little bit myself, uh, I am French-Canadian, French-Quebec. Uh, it is the first time in my life that I call on an English radio station. In school, I learned that when you meet an English people, you speak English. And this was automatic. And now when you see things like this happen, and if the English people that understand French, if they listen to the French uh, radio station on the open line, mm -hmm. I think that's the term, yes. uh, they're going to have surprise because most of the population here do not approve of the FLQ the way they're doing it. Mm -hmm. But they approve of what is in the manifest. They approve of the ideas that they are bringing forward. Mm -hmm. And I've never been violent in my life, but now, I, in the bottom of me, I think that uh, maybe it's a good thing what's happening. On October 14th, a group of 16 Quebec luminaries, among them the editor-in-chief of Le Devoir and Parti Québécois leader René Lévesque, called a press conference to demand that the government negotiate with the FLQ. And the trouble is starting to be felt across the country. Vancouver Mayor Tom Campbell is put under police protection after receiving a letter from FLQ sympathizers. They were threatening to kidnap him. I'll take my chances. Now, you're, you're really genuinely concerned that this is a possibility. I'm concerned. Uh, my wife's concerned. Uh, and it's too bad that the country has to come to this. The next day, Quebec Premier Bourassa announces he's again asked Ottawa to send troops to Montreal and Quebec City. That same evening, October 15th, the head of security for the Montreal Metro called police. They were overwhelmed by the number of rowdy students cramming their way onto the subway. They were headed to the Paul Sauvé Arena in a show of support for the FLQ. In the crowds were activists who had marched for French rights, for workers' rights. Students who had campaigned for McGill University to be made a French school. They argued then it was a racist and colonialist institution. In the arena, Heavyweights of the Quebec left would take turns at the mic. Pierre Vallière, the spiritual leader of the FLQ and recently out of jail, would say of the crowd that on that night they were the FLQ. He urged them to preach the message of the organization in their own circles. Then Robert Lemieux took to the stage. Comme Pierre Paul le dit, en parlant de lui-même et des gars du front, nous sommes l'amorce d'une plus grosse amorce. Lemieux quoted Pierre Paul Geoffroy, the convicted FLQ bomber who now had the heroic aura of a Che Guevara. Le gouvernement s'est fouté de la quasi-totalité du peuple québécois qui parle le moyen... Lemieux ended his speech by denouncing what he thought was the bad faith of the government in negotiations. Robert Demers remembers watching Lemieux on television. Uh, Lemieux, with uh, a couple thousand of students and others uh, chanting FLQ, FLQ, and so on, everybody realized that the situation was getting to a point where it was very dangerous. So Bourassa called a meeting with Demers and the heads of police for both the province and the city of Montreal. Back in May, the U.S. National Guard had opened fire on an anti-war protest at Kent State University in Ohio. Four unarmed students were killed. Another nine were injured. Watching the rally at the Paul Sauvé Arena, police worried the same could happen here. And uh, they said, you know, if this thing goes on, we will be confronted with the same problems. Our officers are working day and night. They're getting tired. Uh, so an accident can easily occur. 
Even now, for many Quebecers, the federal response is seen as a huge overreach by a meddlesome power. But it was officials in Quebec that were looking for support. Remember, this wasn't the first call for help from Quebec. The province had reached out as early as May, and Ottawa did send some troops. But it wasn't until the kidnappings that more drastic measures were considered. Marc Lalonde was Pierre Trudeau's chief of staff in October 1970, just one of a strong contingent of French Canadians that Trudeau had around him in Ottawa. He's 93 now and not totally retired. On October 15th, he was sent to meet with his counterpart in Quebec, where the two hammer out a draft of recommendations to take to their bosses. Trudeau signs off on it. And then uh, my job was to go to Montreal and get a similar letter. It's late that night when Lalonde arrives in Montreal, at least 10 or 11 o'clock, he figures. He's taken from the airport directly to City Hall, where Montreal Mayor Jean Drapeau is waiting for him with his chief executive and the city's lawyer. I had the impression uh, arriving in a city uh, in a state of siege. Uh, I was uh, driven by a police car into the basement of City Hall and uh, um, brought into uh, the office of the mayor where they explained to me uh, the dramatic situation uh, that Montreal was facing. In the end, uh, Mr. Drapeau uh, signed without hesitation uh, the draft letter that I had uh, brought for him to sign. With that letter in hand, Lalonde makes the dash back to Ottawa. And then the country waits for Prime Minister Trudeau to take to the airwaves. I am speaking to you at a moment of grave crisis when violent and fanatical men are attempting to destroy the unity and the freedom of Canada. One aspect of that crisis is the threat which has been made on the lives of two innocent men. He spends much of the first half of the nearly 20-minute address painting a picture of the FLQ as he sees it. He speaks of the kidnappers and their demands with disgust and contempt. You don't need to see the video to hear the sneer in his voice. They want more. They want the police to offer up as a sacrificial lamb a person whom they assume assisted in the lawful arrest and proper conviction of certain of their criminal friends. They also want money, ransom money. They want still more. They demand the release from prison of 17 criminals and the dropping of charges against six other men, all of whom they refer to as political prisoners. Who are these men who are held out as latter-day patriots and martyrs? Let me describe them to you. Three are convicted murderers. Five others were jailed for manslaughter. One is serving a life imprisonment after having pleaded guilty to numerous charges related to bombings. Knowing full well that for most Canadians, the FLQ felt like a faraway nuisance at worst, he brings the fear into living rooms across the country. To bow to the pressures of these kidnappers who demand that the prisoners be released would not only be an abdication of responsibility, it would lead to an increase in terrorist activities in Quebec. It would be as well an invitation to terrorism and kidnappings across the country. We might well find ourselves facing an endless series of demands for the release of criminals from jails from coast to coast, and we would find that the hostages could be innocent members of your family or of your neighborhood. He paints the kidnappers as nothing less than a threat to the very foundations of Canadian democracy. At the moment, the FLQ is holding hostage two men in the Montreal area, one a British diplomat, the other a Quebec cabinet minister. They are threatened with murder. Should the government give in to this crude blackmail, we would be facing the breakdown of the legal system and its replacement by the law of the jungle. Finally, after laying out the case, Trudeau reveals the government's course of action. For that reason, the government, following an analysis of the facts, including the requests of the government of Quebec and of the city of Montreal for urgent action, decided to proclaim the War Measures Act. It did so at 4 a.m. this morning in order to permit the full weight of government to be brought quickly to bear 
on all those persons advocating or practicing violence as a means of achieving political ends. The War Measures Act gives sweeping powers to the government. It also suspends the operation of the Canadian Bill of Rights. It's safe to say that up until this moment, most Canadians have never heard of the War Measures Act. It dates back to 1914, and this is only the third time in Canadian history that the act has been proclaimed. World War I, World War II, and October 16, 1970. The police have therefore been given certain extraordinary powers necessary for the effective detection and elimination of conspiratorial organizations which advocate the use of violence. These organizations and membership in them have been declared illegal. The powers include the right to search and arrest without warrant, to detain suspected persons without the necessity of laying specific charges immediately, and to detain persons without bail. These are strong powers, and I find them as distasteful as I am sure you do. They are necessary, however, to permit the police to deal with persons who advocate or promote the violent overthrow of our democratic system. That speech would echo in Canadian history for decades to come. It would soothe Canadians anxious for a resolute response to terror, and it would anger many who feared it was the beginning of an erosion of basic freedoms. Prime Minister Pierre Trudeau wanted the approval of Parliament for putting into action the highly controversial War Measures Act. Trudeau wiped out almost all opposition by promising new legislation within 30 days to cope with the militant separatists, the FLQ. And Parliament and the people today, in effect, said they were trusting Trudeau not to abuse his blanket powers. But it would not bring the peaceful resolution that many hoped for. There was a final tragic act to come before the end of the FLQ story. The house is less than a mile from where his dead body was found early Sunday. Fearing booby traps, police arrived today with a bomb squad vehicle after a tip from suspicious neighbors. Police did find Quebec Liberation Front literature, blood stains, and many other clues in the abandoned house. That's coming up in the final episode of Recall, How to Start a Revolution. Jacques Langteau was interviewed in 2010 by Radio-Canada's Guy Gendron. Paul Rose was interviewed in 1980 by Radio-Canada's Marc Lorando. This series is produced by Jessica Lindsay, Francis Plourd, and me, Jeff Turner. Our story editor is Chris Oak. Mixing by Graham MacDonald. Our digital producer is Emily Connell. Tanya Springer is the senior producer of CBC Podcasts, and our executive producer is Arif Narani. Thanks for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.